Have you ever found yourself in a new environment where you didn't quite know how to act, you weren't sure what the rules are, you, you couldn't trust your default responses that you're used to? Uh, maybe it's your first day on a new job, right? You're not sure what the dress code is. You're not sure how formal you have to be with all of your coworkers, how much you're allowed to customize your workspace. It, it takes time to get comfortable and know what those defaults are. I remember my first Monday at Ellerslie. I started on a Sunday, but I was moving into my office Monday morning. I've got laundry baskets full of books. I got decor. I'm bringing all this stuff in from my car, and I'm loading it in, and I'm decorating, and I have this big lamp that's made out of a piece of rock. And I was putting it up on my shelf, and uh, Mel, who is the former lead pastor, comes in. He goes, oh, you, you can't have that here. I was, oh, people won't like that you have, like, a rock lamp. And I go, oh, are you, like, are you serious? Like, I can, I can bring it home. I can hide it, like, whatever. And he starts laughing. He's like, oh, I'm pulling your leg. I'm like, oh, okay, good. Like, that's fine. And then later on in the day, I'm taking all these books. I had brought laundry baskets full of books, and I'm putting them up on my shelf, and I'm getting all those sorted. And I have a bunch of books from a couple courses I did on science and religion. And so there's books on young earth creationism and bioethics and all these fun things that we're not going to talk about today. But I have one that's sitting at the front of my shelf, and it's got a picture of Jesus and a dinosaur. And the title of the book is I Love Jesus and Evolution. And he comes into my office and he goes, oh, you, you can't have that book up at the front of your office. People won't like that. And I kind of go, ha ha, you're pulling my leg again. He goes, no. <laughs> so those sections of book are at the very back of my office if you ever wanted to find them. But uh, I tuck those there. Right, we're in a new place. We need to understand the rules. We need to figure out how things work when we're in these environments. Right? It happens to all of us. Maybe when we, we meet our significant other spouse or a new family, we go over for dinner, we kind of go, okay, what's the rule? How much food can I take? What's, what's appropriate dinner conversation? How do some of these go? Or we travel and we get outside of the touristy areas, right? We're not in a resort, but we're, we're going different places. We go, okay, what, what can I wear when I'm in these touristy, or the non-touristy areas of certain countries? How do I navigate transit and the, the culture of bartering in certain areas, right? How do I deal with them putting cilantro in every single meal when it's the worst herb? <laughs> I'm glad at least a few of you are on my side. That's good, okay? Right, when we're in these new scenarios, we kind of go, okay, how do I act? How do I live? What do I do? How do I inhabit this space in a new and meaningful way? Right, what are the defaults? And as we come into our passage today in Genesis chapter 4, we kind of get to ask the same question of how do we act? What is our new response? What's the new default in how we live now that we are outside of the garden? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us these stories to show how we can relate to you. And we ask that as we study your word today, each of us would be drawn closer to you that we would understand you and the world that you have created in a more meaningful way. Amen. If you've been with us over the past number of weeks, you know we're currently in a series on the book of Genesis entitled The Beginning. And so over the past number of weeks, we've been working our way through Genesis and unpacking these different stories from the first 11 chapters and going, how do they shape how we understand ourselves today? Right? How do they understand, shape our understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to be created for relationship, what it means to be fallen but still loved by God. And so today we're going to work through Genesis chapter 4 with a main focus on the story of Cain and Abel. Now many of us in this room, we'd be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, right? A brother rises up, he murders his brother, and then he's sent into exile. But Genesis 4 is so much more than that one story. 
Right, in many ways, Genesis chapter four actually begins in Genesis chapter two. Right, Genesis 2, 4, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And Genesis 2, 3, and 4, they form sort of this expanded genealogy of the family and descendants of Cain, which is then followed in chapter 5 by the genealogy of Seth. And so we're going to read through our passage today. We're going to take it in three major chunks, break down some things that we see in each of those, and then we're going to come back and go, okay, what are the relational threads that we see in this passage? How do these things shape how we relate to God outside of the garden? So we'll be in Genesis chapter four. You can follow along on the screen behind me or the Bibles in the pews or through the Bible app on your phone. Let's read together. This is Genesis four. We're gonna read verses one through 16. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so each of these three sections that we're going to talk about today start the same. There's this mirrored phrasing throughout Genesis chapter 4. Verse 1, it says, Adam knew his wife. In verse 17, we'll get to it a little later, it says, Cain knew his wife. And in verse 25, it says, Adam knew his wife again. The NIV puts it maybe a little more clearly, Adam made love to his wife Eve. So each of these sections of Genesis 4 starts with a conception, a birth, and then we see the events that play out from that over the following verses. Right, so verses, uh, verse one, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And so we arrive outside of the garden. We see that humanity is still continuing, right? Adam and Eve begin to have children. We see that even with them falling out of God's intent in the garden, they still get to live out Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, Now, the descriptions that we get of Cain and Abel, they're super interesting, and not just for the details that were given about them, but for the many details that we aren't. We often talk about this passage as being the story of Cain and Abel. 
as if they're equal characters in the story. That makes sense, right? When we think about a story, we go, okay, who are the main people involved in the action? Okay, it's Cain and it's Abel. But Abel's not really talked about much in this passage, right? For Cain, we get the story, we get conception, we get his birth, we get his naming and the meaning of his name, but Abel is just born. Right? Abel doesn't speak at all in the story, whereas Cain has multiple dialogues with God before and after this murder, right? Even in their name specifically, we get this amplified as well. The name Cain, it sounds like the Hebrew word for got, right? Eve acknowledges God's blessing that I have got him with the Lord, but Abel's name comes, across, or comes from the Hebrew word for vapor or breath, right? Psalm 144, it says, man is like breath, man is like hebel, his days are like a passing shadow. And we see that in this passage, Abel in many ways is like vapor. He is here, but he is quickly gone from the story. He doesn't have children, right? And from the biblical standpoint, his line ends here. Whereas we'll continue to follow the line of Cain throughout the chapter. Genesis chapter four is really a chapter about Cain, about life outside the garden, about life outside the will of God, about life focused on the self and how that is amplified throughout the generations. We continue, it says, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So both Cain and Abel grow up. They're out. They're making their living in the world. They're, they're tending to livestock. They're tending to plants. And they're doing all these things to support themselves. And out of the work they do, they decide, I need to give God an offering. But God responds very differently to these offerings, right? Abel's offering, he has regard for it. He looks favorably on it, but not on Cain's. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of theories on it, right? The Jewish philosopher Philo, he goes, well, Abel's offering was living and Cain's was lifeless. Uh, Jewish historian Josephus believed that's because Abel's was natural where Cain's was cultivated, although a lot of people have discredited that one. Uh, William Barclay believed it was because Abel's involved the spilling of blood as a sin offering, but Cain's wasn't. But nothing in the Genesis story at this point has really pointed us towards this idea of a blood offering for sin. What the text tells us is that they both bring offerings that are tied to their vocations. Right? Cain worked in the fields, and so he brought plants. Abel worked with livestock, and so he brought livestock. And in the Old Testament, there's many examples of both livestock and grain offerings. And so from this passage, one can conclude that the only difference that God is responding to is the attitude of the brothers. Right, the text gives these, lists all these high-quality attributes of Abel's offering. Right? It talks about it being the firstborn. It talks about it being the fat. These terms convey that Abel has brought his best to God, the best and the first portions. Abel honors God through his offering. And Cain simply brings an offering. Right, the firstborn of humans fail to offer the first fruits of his harvest. And to the ancient Israelite audience, this would have been really distinct. It would have been really clear for them to notice that. It's affirmed in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And so Cain does make an offering to God, but Abel makes this offering that recognizes God as being first and as deserving these great portions of the gift where Cain's offering is given, but there's nothing notable about it. 
The passage continues in verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so after Cain is angry over this, his response or God's response to his offering, God comes to Cain. Right? God is still relating to his people. He's still in conversation. And God questions Cain's reaction says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And Cain has really built up this little barrier between himself and God, but he's not disqualified yet. Right? There's still space for Cain to come closer to God. There's still space for him to engage in proper worship. There's still space for him to bring a proper offering. And God warns Cain of this attitude he has. Right? He says, sin is crouching at the door. And crouching in this context isn't really to be lying or to be waiting, but it kind of describes an animal that's ready to pounce. And so in this warning, God offers Cain the hope that he could control his impulse to commit sin, even though it's strong. Right? Should Cain act wrongfully, it would be because he yielded to his sinful desires, not because God has rejected his offering. Continue in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And considering we think of this as the, the crux of the Cain and Abel story, right? This, this, the defining point of this story, the description of the murder is shockingly brief. Right? It's reported in such a short manner that it almost comes across as incidental to the passage. If you remember Pastor Joel's sermon on Genesis a couple weeks ago, he talked about how the biblical writers communicate very differently than we do where we would include many details to enhance our story and to make it more interesting and to make it more engaging. Um, the biblical writers gloss over many details that we might think are important so that they can highlight the details that are truly important. And when we read this passage with that understanding, we can realize this, the murder is not the important piece of the story, the interaction between God and Cain is. Right, we continue verse 9 and 10. I think I jumped a slide there. Uh, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And so Cain murders Abel. And when he's confronted by God, he hides his sin, right? He, first, he, he lies to God by saying, oh, I don't know where he is. And he continues with the somewhat ironic, I am not my brother's keeper, it's ironic for two ways. The first, Abel was a shepherd. Right? He was a keeper of sheep. He was a keeper of livestock. God's whole purpose for humanity in the garden was to keep the garden, to name and to subdue and to rule over the animals. There's never a need for humans to have a keeper presented. And the irony continues because Cain has essentially said to God, well, am I responsible for Abel's whereabouts? You know, am I responsible when Cain's directly responsible for his death? We continue in verse 11 and 12. It says, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And here we have the curse on Cain. Right? Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. They were removed a distance from God's presence, but Cain is actually expelled further. 
We see this continual removal of provisions, right? The garden was lush and there was fruit on the trees and outside of the garden, Cain had to work the fields to provide for himself and now he's cursed that even the ground should not yield for him. He'll be forced to wander and to gather. And so Cain cries out to God, this is, this is too much for me to bear. Verse 13, he says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And this isn't really repentance, right? We kind of go, oh, Cain's not, he's not really apologizing for his actions. There's no recognition of wrong. He never goes, oh, I've, I've done something bad. No, he's just scared of the punishment. Right? He's scared of, of retribution. And I think all of us do this a little bit in our lives, right? When we apologize, not because we're sorry, but we apologize because it's easier than dealing with the consequences of our actions. Right? At no point have we thought about what we've actually done. We haven't made a plan to understand our behavior, to change our behavior. That's what Cain's doing. But even with this unrepentant apology, God still extends grace to Cain. It says, uh, verse 15, The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Right, we, we, astonishingly, God doesn't, uh, he doesn't sentence Cain, the first murderer, to death. Instead, he sees value in Cain's life. He graciously lets him live. He doesn't give up quickly on his people who have rejected him. Right, God provides this continuing protection for Cain. And not only does he not take retribution, right, he gives this mark of Cain. And we don't really know what this is, but likely it's some sort of sign that indicated God's presence and protection rested on him. And so Cain leaves God's presence and he heads east. And we see this a lot, and especially in the book of Genesis, as people move east, they're moving further and further away from God. Right, Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so when humanity leaves the garden, they head east. When Cain murders Abel and he's exiled further, he heads east. Later in Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So we have this metaphor in the Bible we see many times that to, to move east is to move further and further and further away from God, to go away from his presence. And Cain and all his descendants are heading east. That kind of concludes the, the first chunk of this chapter. Right? And for today's sake, this is the longest chunk we're going to spend time on. But as we leave, we can kind of see that Genesis 4, and this story especially, is really just a retelling of Genesis 3. Right? Humans disobey God. God comes and he questions those involved. He questions Adam and Eve. He questions Cain. God pronounces sentence. He pronounces these curses. God then redefines the aspects of the way humans relate to each other and, and God banishes the offenders from their original location. Moreover, we see in chapter four the consequences of the curse from chapter three. Right, we see this amplification. Outside of the garden, death becomes a reality for humanity. And we read that in chapter three, but it comes in chapter four in a much different way than we might expect. 
right? Death is not a penalty pronounced by God, but death actually comes as this malevolent force destroying the innocent. Right? It becomes as an action humanity takes against each other, not as just a punishment from God. This first part of Genesis 4 is really just the fall narrative repeated again. We continue in our passage. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 17 as we talk about Cain's descendants. It says, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when they built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael. I practiced these guys, I did, I promise. And Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And so as we continue through this chapter, through Genesis chapter 4, we see this increase throughout the line of Cain. We briefly hear about Cain's son Enoch, and then we go through this quick summary of four more generations before we end up in Lamech. And so this would make Lamech the seventh generation from Adam. And the number seven is somewhat significant in the Bible. It often indicates the sense of fullness or completeness. Right? There are seven days in the creation story. The Israelites are called to forgive debts that they hold every seven years. Jericho falls after the seventh march on the seventh day. Naaman the leper is instructed to bathe in the Jordan seven times for his healing. There are many examples of this, but this number seven is significant. Right? It paints a picture of the full measure of something. And so Lamech, in many ways, is the fullness, the completeness of this line of Cain. And we see this amplified in this poem that he reads at the end of his, uh, in verse 23. He says to his wives, hear my voice. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77. Unlike his ancestor Cain, who felt this desperate need for protection, right, who was scared of retribution that would come on him, Lamech feels fine in his own security. Right, if he can handle any difficulty or mistreatment himself, and if Cain is avenged only sevenfold, he will be avenged 77-fold. He's not worried about taking the law into his own hands. His, his chief characteristics here in line with his irregular marriages, they're not commendable. He has the spirit of vindictiveness. He's a proud man and he doesn't back away or hesitate to kill. Right, later on in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, God will lay out rules for the Israelites, including this, Exodus 21. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, and wound for wound. This idea is where we get the Latin phrase lex talionis, right? Exact retaliation. It is equal. But Lamech's not satisfied with this equal punishment. Right? For him, his revenge must be great, 
Not wound for wound, but if he is wounded, he must take a life. And so we leave the story of Cain, somewhat disappointed with the direction that humanity is heading. But as we end with Lamech, we realize this progression has moved us further and further and further away from God and his will. But hope isn't lost. We come to the final portion of Genesis chapter 4 with the birth of Seth. It says in verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed to me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so like with the birth of Cain, we get more details in this passage regarding the birth and naming of Seth. Seth means granted, right? God has granted me another child. And so Eve is attributing the birth of her child to the grace of God. And Genesis chapter 5 will continue to explore this line coming from Seth, and we'll chat about that next week. But we get to see one key detail emerge about this line in our chapter today. It's at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so we have hope Cain has come and he has moved further away from God's will. And his family and his generations have further and further rebelled. But in the line of Seth, we see hope. That there are still those who will faithfully call on the name of the Lord. Cain's firstborn and his successors, they pioneer cities, they pioneer arts. But Seth's firstborn and his successors and his generation, they pioneer worship calling on the name of the Lord. And so next week, we're going to further explore what it looks like to see that lived out in this family of the faithful, right? This family that still honors God. But we're going to look back over this passage and see some of the ways that we relate to God outside of the garden. Right? The first thing that we see in this passage is that God is worshipped. Right? Cain and Abel both bring their offerings to God. Even though Cain may not give God his first or his best, both of them recognize that God is worthy of praise. They worship and they give God honor through their offerings. We see God worshiped by Eve, right? In both the birth of Cain and Seth, Eve speaks to the Lord's involvement in the births. And I have gotten with the help of the Lord for Cain, or the Lord has appointed, or the Lord has granted me for Seth. Eve recognizes and gives God praise and honor and recognizes his involvement in this gift of life. And in verse 26, we see that people call on the name of the Lord. And as people that live outside of the garden, as people that ourselves are in this space, we too can worship God. We still have the opportunity in our lives to give God credit and praise and honor and hold him in right view. There's a second way that we can relate to God. And that's God is rejected. Right, we can reject God. We mainly think of this in Cain and Lamech, but really it's throughout the passage. Right, when Eve gives birth to Cain, she declares, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And we might go, okay, well, Eve's acting right. She's giving God credit. But when we look at the Hebrew, we see it actually is a little bit of a boast. Right? Umberto Casato, he's an Italian historian and scholar. He's a much better understanding of Hebrew than I do. He says, the first woman in her joy at giving birth to her first son boasts of her generative power, which approximates in her estimation to the divine creative power. 
Right? The Lord formed the first man, and I have formed the second man. It's possible to translate it literally as, I have created a man with the Lord, or I stand together with God in the rank of creators. Right? Eve in some ways sees herself as being on equal footing to God, as being a part of creation, or being a creator of creation. We see this in Cain, right? He rejects God by giving him this lesser or improper sacrifice. He keeps his own first fruits. He keeps the things of the highest quality for himself. He puts his view of himself above his view of God. We continue to see it in his murder of Abel, right? Why does Cain murder? Is it because he hated Abel? Yes, but also no. Why does Cain murder? Asked Dietrich Bonhoeffer in one of his writings. He says it's out of hatred for God. Murder is an act of hatred towards God for making or accepting another who offends us or troubles us or is favored with gifts and honors that we do not have. Or we see this again in the story of Lamech boasting in his vindictiveness, standing proudly as he speaks of murder and revenge against those who would come against him. And by the time we get to Lamech, there's not even consideration for God mentioned. And like these people outside of the garden, we too have the ability to reject God. We can hear his calling, we can hear his will for our lives, we can see how he calls us to treat and to honor others, and we can reject that. Every day we make hundreds of decisions that move us further or closer from God's will. But thankfully there are more than just these two options. And we also see that God is gracious to us outside the garden. God extends grace to Cain, not only by not taking his life, by not taking this equal measure, but by giving him this mark of protection. God is gracious to Adam and Eve in giving them another son who will go on to bear the promise of hope in standing against the serpent. And it's through the line of Seth that ultimately we see Jesus, the one who will undo the curse in the garden the one who gave his life for each of us, the one who restores our relationships, the one who saves us. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? Jesus is God extending grace to all of us. He's calling us into a new way of living. He steps into all the ways that we reject God or all the ways we have rejected God. He helps us to see people with new eyes, to see them how God wants us to see them. He invites us to live a life where not only do we take, not take abundance of revenge, we turn the other cheek, right? A life where we forgive 70 times seven times instead of taking vengeance 77 times, right? That is who Jesus is. That is God's grace for us outside of the garden. And I think this idea of grace and the face of rejection is really captured in Victor Hugo's Les Mis. John Valjean, the subject of the novel, he steals a loaf of bread. And as a result, he spends 19 years in prison. And when he's finally released, he, um, you know, he gets taken in by a bishop and he finds himself unable to resist temptation, so he steals a bunch of the silverware. He doesn't get far before he's captured by the police and the next day they bring him back to the house with all the valuables to return them. And he's startled by the bishop's response. Bishop says, ah, here you are. I'm glad to see you well, but how is this? Because I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? 
My friend, resumed the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks. Take them. And he goes and he grabs these candlesticks and he hands them there. And the bishop draws near to him and he says in a low voice, do not forget, never forget that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. And John Valjean, who has no recollection of this, of the promise ever being made, he's speechless. And the bishop emphasized these words. He resumes, he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you are no longer, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it back from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And this is the, the turning point in his life, right? And the remainder of the story will continue to follow what that looks like. But when we read this account of mercy and of compassion, and we see its impact in his life, we're bewildered, right? We're, we're awestruck. How much more should we be in awe of God and his mercy? Right? We don't know whether Cain ultimately turned back to God or not, right? But it's irrelevant how Cain has responded to God. What is important is how we respond to God's mercy, to his grace, to his compassion that he's reaching out to us. I'll invite the, the worship and prayer teams up as we close, but... All of us have the choice, right? God is still offering us this grace through Jesus. And so we have a choice. We can live like Cain. We can live like his descendants. We can reject God. We can choose our own ways, our own self-interests, our habits. Or like Abel and like Seth, we can worship God. We can give him what he is due. We can call on the name of the Lord to restore us. And so if there are things in your life or ways that you know you've been rejecting God, I wanna invite you to take a moment and as we sing, to turn those over to God. Right, to take time and repent of some of the ways you've been putting yourself first, the ways you've been rejecting him. And if you'd like to pray with somebody for that, our prayer team's gonna be at the front uh, during this song. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that in the garden, when humanity rejected you, you gave us hope. We thank you that when those outside the garden turn further and further away from you, God, that you still continue to extend your grace. And we thank you especially for the life and sacrifice of Jesus. Grace poured out for each one of us. God, we ask that we would be more aware of your grace and that we would be able to live lives where we can honor and glorify you. Amen.